Hey everyone, it's Joe Chicarone and welcome to Built Not Born, episode 62, The Next Wave. Today's guest is Michael Lombardi. Michael Lombardi is a former NFL general manager and three-time Super Bowl champion. Michael is also the author of the book, Gridiron Genius, a masterclass in winning championships and building dynasties in the NFL. I was so fortunate to get Michael on the show. Michael has a remarkable football journey. He learned from three of the most legendary minds in the game ever. Michael started his NFL career under Bill Walsh, who built the San Francisco 49ers dynasty in the early 80s. He was there for one of their Super Bowls. Michael also learned from Al Davis, the owner of the Oakland Raiders. He has some great stories in the book that he shares. Michael also spent time with the GOAT, Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots. He and Belichick have formed a close relationship, so much so that Bill Belichick writes the foreword of Michael's book, Gridiron Genius. Michael and I discuss not just football, but the leadership lessons that you can draw from the NFL and take to your everyday life. Michael also discusses how to build a culture of a team and why a leader has to develop confidence without evidence, especially in the early going when you're forming a new team. I was so excited for Michael to join us and can't wait to share this interview with you. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the follow button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with former NFL general manager and three-time Super Bowl champion, Michael Lombardi. And remember, life is built, not born. Michael Lombardi, welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Joe. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Michael, it's an honor to have you. Michael, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who Mm -hmm. are you and what do you do? Well, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to, I grew up in a little beach town called Ocean City, New Jersey. I I had a dream of following in the footsteps of a man that I saw on television that had the same last name as me. And I wanted to get into football, even though I wasn't related. And I was inspired by, as most people who grew up in the Garden State, I was inspired by Bruce Springsteen's urge to cross Highway 9 and chase your dreams. So I'm a combination of somebody who saw something, they wanted it, and they ran and got it. Michael, I want to get into your football journey, which is remarkable, which you document in one of my favorite sports books ever, Gridiron Genius, your time under Al Davis, starting with Bill Walsh, driving him around, your work with Bill Belichick, the GOAT. And then I'd like to get into that and maybe a couple things from the book and where the current NFL is going. Is that all right with you? Sounds good to me, Joe. You take it anywhere you want to go. Awesome. How did you first realize, bring us to high school, right? So what, what sports you play? Where'd football fall in that journey? I played, uh, I played football and baseball in high school. I went to Valley Forge. Uh, my junior year, I transferred from Ocean City High School to Valley Forge Military Academy because I needed to get my grades up and my high school coach. Uh, a, a high school friend of mine saw me on the beach and he ended up being the head coach of Valley Forge Military Academy. So uh, a Norristown guy named John Servino, he got me to go to Valley Forge, which really started my career because it actually got me into a 
a more disciplined routine and got me to where I could understand what the world was about and and then put me on a path to try to get into college and go from there. I love to hear that. I was born in Norristown, grew up there. He was a head coach at actually Norristown High School for a long time. Was he really? No kidding. Yeah. And then he he was my neighbor here in Ocean City as when I was a little kid. He was a high school coach here in Ocean City. He was my neighbor. And then I just happened to run into him on the beach in the summertime here on North Street Beach, which is where I used to go. So um, it was serendipitous, at, you know, and so it was fortunate because it put me on a pathway to where I knew I wanted to get into coaching. I knew I wanted to be into football, but I didn't know how to get there. It's like writing a book. You know, if you don't have a structure to what you're writing, you can't really write a book. So in life, you need a structure like, how am I going to go from A to B? And Coach Savino was was able to get me started from A and then taught me how to get to B. And then from there, I just did it all my own. Wow. So take us to you graduate Valley Forge Military Academy. What's your next you know, step? And one of the coaches on the Valley Forge staff is a guy by the name of Roger Saicoli, who was a Vietnam veteran who came back. He played at Hofstra University, and he got a lot of kids to go to Hofstra from Valley Forge. So I went up to Hofstra, uh, spent some time there. I, first, I went to Trenton State for a year. Then I transferred to Hofstra to get, because of my grades. And then I was able to play football at Hofstra. And while I was in Hofstra in college, I was really dedicated to trying to learn football. So I would go to coaching clinics throughout the Northeast once football season was over. I would drive on a Friday or Saturday and I would go to some coaching clinic, whether it was in Nutley, New Jersey or down in Atlantic City or anywhere just to learn the game. And one of the clinics that I went to, I was fortunate enough to meet a guy by the name of Harvey Hyde, who was then a head coach at Pasadena City College in, in Pasadena, California. And two years later, he became the head coach at UNLV just when I was getting ready to graduate from college. And he offered me a non-paying job at UNLV, which was the only job I could get. So I took it and went. Wow. UNLV a little different than Ocean City, huh? <laughs> a lot different, yeah. I mean, I can still remember the day I loaded up my truck and I drove out there. You know, I was I was going to go out there to, uh, you know, I wanted to learn football. I wanted to be involved. I really wasn't worried about making money. Mm-hmm. I had a really good summer job in, in Ocean, in Seattle, actually bartending, and the drinking age was 18. So What bar? What bar were we working at? La Costa Lounge. Oh, which, La Costa. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so all my buddies, uh, all my buddies, uh, you know, worked with me there. And, and I saved enough money. I was able to then go to UNLV and not make any money. And once I got out there, I started my football journey. When you were at UNLV, was the shark there? Tark was shark. The Tark was there. Shark, Jerry Tarkanian, and his late brother, Myron, were both Armenian and Coach Hyde's Armenian. So there was a connection. And they're all the, the Tarkanians are from Pasadena. They knew Coach Hyde. So that's how, how, kind of how Harvey got the job was because of Jerry and his relationship. Nothing like him biting on the towel and UNLV running up and down to shooting threes. <laughs> just yeah, they used to play in the old convention center when I first got there. And they were just building the Thomas and Mac. You know, this is when the Las Vegas Hilton was still the Hilton. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's when Elvis used to play there all the time. Yeah. And Elvis making a comeback. All of a sudden, I heard my uh, 15-year-old son. All of a sudden, I hear his playlist. Elvis is on now because of the movie. They yeah, saw the yeah. movie. Yeah. yeah. What's old is new. What all, it's like football. What old is new. It all comes back around. 
Let's talk about football. Let's get into this. I took a whole bunch of notes from the Gridiron Genes. I love that book. I read it twice. How much I loved it. And I actually liked it better the second time. So you started your career with one of the goats, Bill Walsh in 1984 at the start of the San Francisco dynasty. Talk about how that started. Well, I was working at UNLV and this scout, the director of college scouting for the 49ers came in one day. His name was Tony Rosano. And he, he was looking for somebody to help in his, his scouting department. And so, you know, I, I kind of got an interview. And then when I got into the building and they hired me and paid me, you know, minimum, the whatever the wage was, which was I was very generous of. Uh, then Coach Walsh, whenever he needed an Aaron, Nicole, his secretary, would I was viewed as the Aaron boy of the building, you know. And so, if, and this is 84, so – you know, things were a lot, a lot simpler than you could pull up to San Francisco airport and wait at the curb for somebody to come out. You know, you could, you know, you could, you could pretty much do anything. So I became his like valet. If he needed his dry cleaning picked up, I went and got it. If I needed to take him to the airport, I did that. So I had a lot of, I would not say alone time, but I had a lot of alone time with him because there was no satellite radio. Mm -hmm. There was no cell phones. You know, it was just he and I in the car. And so as I got more comfortable doing what I did, I was able to ask him a lot of football questions that probably had I not done that job, I would have never been able to do. I remember somewhere in the book, you mentioned Bill Walsh is, is known for creating the West Coast offense. And I believe you mentioned somewhere that it was actually the West Coast offense, if I remember from the book, was created in an office in Cincinnati. Yes. Yeah, can you talk about that? Yeah. So, yeah. In fact, the new book that I've just kind of completed, I, I talk about the coaching roots of the NFL. Basically, there's five coaching roots, what I call them the trees, where, where all these coaching trees started from. And the first one is really Paul Brown, where Coach Walsh learned his trade from. Paul Brown is the Bill Gates of the NFL. He developed the operating system for coaches. He is the Microsoft, if you will, for coaching. He basically taught coaches how to scout, how to game plan, how to prepare, how to do a lot of things. So he has one tree. Earl Red Blake, a great West Point coach at Army, uh, he has another tree. That's where Lombardi came from. And then you have Sid Gilman, who started at Ohio State, played quarterback, and then he kind of worked for this Francis, they called him Francis Fanatic Schmidt, who loved the forward pass. He loved to throw the ball when – Ohio State wasn't really a throwing team, but Sid Gilman was one of the coaching trees that DuPont was in the league, you know, and, and he was instrumental in, in all that. And then the other guy who doesn't get enough credit is not in the Hall of Fame and should be is Clark Shaughnessy. And then, of course, Coach Walsh. That makes the five that I wrote about. When mm -hmm. I would get on a team bus in San Francisco, I would always sit behind Coach Walsh if he needed something. And nine times out of ten, he was usually doodling on a white index card, a, a play from Clark Shaughnessy's offense, the, the, the T formation. Clark Shaughnessy is the father of the forward pass. Really? He started the forward pass in football, the passing game. Sid Gilman took it to another level, you know, and then Coach Walsh took it to a supreme level by the West Coast because when he got to Cincinnati and worked for Paul Brown, they were expansion team. And they couldn't really run the ball. Football back then in the 60s was a brute force game, right? 
So it was all about because, and part of the reason wasn't because the coaches were smart. It was because the offensive linemen couldn't extend their arms. They had a block like this with their hands close to their chest, with the with the with the with their knuckles pressed against them against each other, so they didn't extend their arms, and so it was hard to pass block. And the defense could use their hands, so they had all the advantage. So forward passing was hard. I mean, Bark Starr got sacked nine times in the ice bowl. Wow! In the game, the Green Bay beat. I mean, you know, and so had that happened today, you know, WIP and Philly would have been killing Lombardi <laughs> for letting Starr get sacked that many times, right? Oh my gosh, you can't so, imagine. So what Walsh decided was, I can't run the ball against these bigger and better teams. I need to figure out a way to do that, and that's where the West Coast offense came. When that something like that's created, which is still in the game today, and it's a major factor in the game today. Is that something where it's just a switch? Like, where did this come from? Or is it like an evolution? Like, how does that without well, West Coast Anything new has to become an evolution because most people, like the forward pass, when, when they started to throw the ball in football, you know, people said that that's just a fad. You know, there was a lot of – there was a strong contingency in the league that, that thought forward throwing the ball was, was really being soft. You weren't being a tough-minded guy. So yeah. there was a lot of resentment. And George Papa Bear Hallis – deserves a lot of credit because he kind of embraced it. And had he not embraced it, I don't know if other people would have, but there's always a skepticism about something new, you know, and Walsh had the label for most of his career as being a soft, his offense was soft when it was far from soft. He was a tough minded coach, but that was a perception that was attached to it because people didn't buy into it. But, you know, back in that day, it was seven step drops, throw the ball down the field. Remember, Joe Namath ended his career with a higher interception percentage than touchdowns because that was more than normal. It was more than norm back then. You weren't looking for completed passes. You weren't looking for short. You were throwing it up the field. So, you know, it wasn't taken initially with the love that it obviously is today. But part of that love comes from coaches' trees. Mm-hmm. So whether it's Mike Holmgren, Paul Hackett, you know, Nathaniel Hackett's the head coach of the Denver Broncos today. His father, Paul Hackett, was on the staff for Bill Walsh in 1984. Mm-hmm. So he learned he, – Nathaniel probably learned the West Coast offense before he learned the alphabet. That's awesome. One of the stories I really liked in the book where they mentioned how you found Charles Haley, where you needed an outside pass rusher. And um, yeah, so, so that's – Yeah, that's we had just, we had, in 1984, we had Fred Dean, who was one of the greatest pass rushers. He's in the Hall of Fame from Louisiana Tech. 85, he wasn't the same player. We weren't the same team because of that. So when we entered the 86 draft, Coach Walsh made it a mandate. He wanted somebody who was at least six feet four, somebody who was over 240 pounds, somebody who could run. He didn't really put a measurable on the time, but was a good pass rusher and somebody that could we could develop into a third down rusher. Back in the 80s, downs matter. Today, downs don't matter. It's all personnel groupings. So, you know, we I went through all these candidates, and we narrowed it down to two people. We narrowed it down to Romel Andrews, a kid from Tennessee Martin, or Charles Haley, an outside linebacker from James Madison. And when I finally got the tape in on James Madison, we all set up in this conference room up at 7-Eleven Nevada Street in the, in the main office. And we put the tape on and Haley lined up at right outside linebacker. And Tracy Ham was the quarterback for Georgia Tech. And Tracy Ham took the ball and he ran the option away from Haley. 
Haley comes storming down the line of scrimmage. He gets on Tracy Ham's back. Ham feels him on his back. He's getting ready to go to the ground. He pitches the ball to the running back. And then Haley leaves Ham and tackles the running back for a three-yard loss. And Coach Walsh hits the projector and says, do we need to watch any more, fellas? Mm-hmm. And that was our guy. I remember from my childhood, he would give me fits when he played the Eagles when he was on the Cowboys or the Niners. Like he was just a beast. I mean, he, he was, was so great. He came in as a rookie. I think he had 12, he had 10 sacks as a rookie. But when Walsh got him, the first thing we did with him was we didn't try to make him into everything. We just decided he was going to do one thing really well as a rookie. He did that really well. Yeah, that, that the ability to focus and not be everything that like you said that you're going to you're, you're going to rush the passer. And when you focus someone with that much talent and skill in a system like that, uh, amazing things happen. One other story from the book I just love during your 49er days, how you created a phantom back injury to save John Taylor's career, and he winds up getting three Super Bowl rings. Can you tell that one? I thought that was awesome. Yeah, you know, so that draft that we drafted Charles Haley was probably one of the greatest drafts I've ever been a part of. And it didn't start out that way. You know, it really didn't. It started out with Coach Walsh telling me to go to the blackboard and write three names on the blackboard. There was a, literally a blackboard. This is 86. There were no magnet. There were no grease boards then. And so I wrote down, I wrote the first name he told me to write down was Gerald Robinson, defensive end Auburn, because we thought Robinson could be a great pass rusher. And then I wrote down John L. Williams running back from Florida. And then I wrote Ronnie Harmon running back from Iowa. We had, I think, the 17th pick in the draft that year. We didn't play. We weren't very good. It was a 2018 league, and we weren't a good team. And so as soon as I wrote those three names on the board, Minnesota picked Gerald Robinson. Then the next pick was Seattle. They picked John L. Williams. And the next pick was Buffalo, and they picked Ronnie Harmon. Now, we have two picks to go. That was that was the 17th. We have the 19th pick. So we traded from 19 to Dallas, who had 21, just to buy a half hour to regroup. We didn't really know what we are going to do. Mm-hmm. So we traded down to 21. We bought a half hour. Then we traded from 21 down to 28. Then we traded from 28 to, to, to the middle, the top of the second round. And by the end of the day, Joe, we had had, we traded away uh, a second round pick for a first round pick the next year. We picked Larry Roberts from the University of Alabama in the second round, who we were going to pick. And then we had three third round picks, three fourth round picks, and a, and a bunch of other picks. So in one of the picks in the third round, we had John Taylor, who I worked out at Delaware State, and coach liked him. And so we picked him. And, you know, and then he came into camp. He really wasn't ready to play right away. He was mm-hmm. from Delaware State. He hadn't really been coached, yada, yada, yada. And so we tried to trade him to most every team in the league. We couldn't even get a 10th round pick for him. Wow. So when I told when I knew that, I said, John, you better hurt your, you better go downstairs, tell Lindsey McLean, that was our trainer at the time, that your back's bothering him. Because like in the Sopranos, when Big Pussy had the back injury, no, the back in nobody knows about back injuries. You, yeah. They're just nebulous. You can't tell, right? So he went down and told the trainer, I got a bad back. They we put him on IR. I went out on the road. And when I came back in from being on the road, John Taylor was the talk of the team. Really? He just needed to kind of get some seasoning. And then that's where his career started. You brought him some time. Wow. That is, that's pretty close. You just saw, you, what did you see in him that you knew that even though it was one? He was long. He was really long. He was very athletic. He had, 
he he had a huge catch radius. Plus, he was really good with the ball in his hands. Okay. John Taylor was a lot like Debo Samuel is today, it, okay. even though he never ran the ball from running. He was hard to tackle once he got going. Okay. Now, someone like that, I try to connect that to modern-day player that drives us crazy on the Eagles now. Like, say, like a Jordan Rager, where that has all the tools but hasn't done anything yet. At some point, like this third year in, can can someone like Rager be the Taylor did it. Taylor did it his first – Taylor, when I came back in off the road in October from scouting, Taylor was the talk of the team. Okay. Like, he just couldn't play because he was on IR. Gotcha. Okay. The next year, he the next year he immediately became a player. Okay. Whereas Rieger's kind of struggling along, trying to get himself going. He hasn't quite had that. That a lot of it is he just hasn't really been able to find himself. His his conditioning sometimes is bad. There's always something. How important mm-hmm. it is to Rieger, I think, would be the bigger question. Here's a, a Bill Walsh quote that you put in the book that I like: "Champions behave like champions before they are champions." the turnaround time i think they were like the worst team in the league and then like x amount of months later they won a super bowl like it was crazy how quick he turned it took two years i mean when his his first two years he didn't win very many games mm-hmm. he actually started out i think he lost seven straight games in a row as a coach but he was building something he was building a foundation I th- and i wrote about this for why well, i write for visa and vegas stats and information network i also do their show and I have my own show on their network and they, uh, you know, a lot of these coaches today, they want to turn the team around instantly. Mm. Well, Bill Parcells was two, seven and one his first year at the Giants. Walsh was had two horrible years. Joe Gibbs lost his first five games as a head NFL coach. You got to build Bill Walsh was building a foundation. And that was the most important thing for him was to build that foundation. Mm-hmm. And that's really how he got it going. And it took two years. But once he got Montana in a groove, he had Dwight Clark. He had Freddie Solomon. The offensive line was much better. And then he got better on defense. And then once he did that, he became a real problem. And then the third year they won the Super Bowl? Like how quick? Third they- year they won the Super Bowl, yeah. That is that is it. What did you see? Like there was another quote that I put next to the champions behave like champions. You, This is your quote in the book. It says, culture beats everything. So what did you see when you say culture? It's almost like an intangible thing that that just makes everything click. What type of culture did Walsh build around? Like that last place team that over three seasons won a Super Bowl. What what were some of the things you saw that created the culture there? Well, everybody was held accountable. You know, he would have a meeting once a month with every department. And he would go over your job and what you were doing and how you were supposed to behave. You know, I tell the story in the book about the guy who was the PA announcer at Candlestick Park and he wasn't doing his job the right way. And, mm-hmm. and he told me to get on the headset to remind him to fire the PA announcer on Monday, wow. you know? And so, you know, everybody had a standard performance that they had to meet and that's culture. It's the same thing in New England, you know, you're expected to do your job. You're expected to do this every day. And if you don't, you're not going to be around. It's bigger than the team. Everybody has to fight and work towards one common goal, which is winning, not for your own personal satisfaction or for your own personal achievements or advancements. Understood. Moving on. Was it during this time that you found Mike Holmgren? He was a quarterback coach in Brigham Young. Was this around the time that happened? You know, Bill Walsh told me to go down to the – this is – Paul Hackett had just left after the 85 season to go to Dallas. and. 
Coach Walsh told me to go down to our what we call the media guide room because back in that day there was no internet, right? Mm-hmm. So you used to keep media guides from schools. That was a big thing. Get the media guides. You would keep the media guide from the school for years. And so he told me to go down and look at the top five college passing offenses and then cut out the picture of the offensive coordinator, glue it to a white piece of paper and put it in a folder so he could read the backgrounds of the coaches. So one of those coaches was Mike Holmgren. And now Vic Rapp, the the coach at San Francisco State, worked with Mike. He was the head coach at San Francisco State. Vic Rowan, I'm sorry. Vic Rowan was the head coach, and Vic was pushing Mike for a job there. And then Coach Walsh sent me to the airport to pick him up at the airport. The next thing you know, we hired – when Hackett left, we hired Mike Holmgren and Denny Green to replace one man. And then Holmgren, when he comes into the league, is he a quarterback's coach right away? Like, which, When he comes from Brigham Young and he joins the staff, what's his role there? His, he's the quarterback coach. They made Danny Green the wide receiver. Hackett was the wide receiver, tight end, and quarterback coach. Right. Now, Hackett did all three. Right. And then Holmgren was kind of like one of Walsh's main guys, the first main guy. When I mean, you do like the Walsh's coaching tree, would you say Holmgren's like one of his main initial people that, that dropped from the tree? Offensively, yeah. So what made like Holmgren, what was different about him right away? Could you tell right away he was different than your average Mike quarterback? Had, Mike, has great, Mike had great people skills. Okay. Mike was tough. Mike could be demanding. And Mike was very good at at understanding how to coach the quarterback, you know, and he had great leadership skills. One thing I learned from the book, you mentioned why leadership matters. You mentioned organization is important. There's a lot of coaches now that show up with like five binders to tell you what the third practice is going to be on the seventh week. But your quote from the book, which I found fascinating is organization is important, but leadership is what matters for head coaches where you have right. like the coaches that are super organized, but they don't have the leadership skills. Can you speak about that? Well, you know, it's, well, yeah, it's kind of funny because I'm going to write a column about that. I write, we have a website with George Ravlin, coach Ravlin from who's one of the most fascinating human beings on planet earth. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we, we co-founded the daily coach. Love that. And tomorrow I'm going to write, you know, you're always thinking about ideas to write. What Holmgren was good at doing and what Walsh was really good at doing was understanding what the job was and what it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And part of that is really sounds really easy and simplistic, but often it's not. Some guys lose sight of what the job really is. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go into a school or you, you take over a team and you're worried about the facilities and you're out raising money to get the facilities, you know, the job is football. Nick Saban knows what his job is. It's about coaching that football team, coaching the coaches. And I think that that, that ultimately is what Holmgren was very good at doing. Mm-hmm. So he learned it from Walsh. So fast forward a little bit here. Then from San Fran, you wind up uh, with the last Maverick in football, Al Davis. How'd you go from San Fran to the Raiders? Well, when I was driving Coach Walsh around, he told me the most football he ever learned in his life was working for Al Davis. So I felt like I needed to work for Al Davis to learn as much football as I could. And so one of the one of the, the benefits of finding Charles Haley and Walsh, Walsh was kind of bragging about Charles Haley before he became Charles Haley, and he bragged about him to Al Davis. And Al wanted to find out who, who was the guy responsible for finding him, and then that became me. And then I developed a relationship with him. And then when I left uh, 
when I got fired after the Eagles, when I, after the Eagles draft of, see, we drafted Trey Thomas, we traded for Hugh Douglas, mm. we drafted Jeremiah Trotter, Alan Rossum, Brandon Whiting, Court, but Courtney Love, and then Ike Reese in the fifth. Pro Bowler? Yeah. Huh? Pro Bowler. Ike Reese made the Pro Bowlers. Pro yeah, Bowlers. And, and, I got fired, and I got fired by the Eagles after that draft. Is that Norman Brayman years? Was that the no, Brayman? That was Jeffrey Lurie. That's when they brought in Tom Modrak. Okay, gotcha. You got Dr- Jeremiah Trotter in his prime. What a beast. So good. Yeah, so, but anyway, but that's that's neither here nor there. Yeah. So And Trey Thomas. When, I, mean, I, left, the, when awesome. I left the Eagles, when I left the Eagles, we... Uh, I ended up going. That's when I went to went to Oakland. You ask any Eagle fan the worst game in Eagles history. What do you think they would say? The worst Eagles, the worst game ever. Hmm. You know, the fog game in Chicago. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that was heartbreaking. But when Gruden came in and when they closed the vet down and they beat us, Tampa Bay game. Tampa Bay came in. I think Tampa Bay was the best. Look, we lost to Tampa Bay that year in the Super Bowl. Okay, that's right. You guys were right. right. The Raiders. Yeah, that's right. Yep. It wasn't, their defense was just way better than everybody else. Yeah. And that, that game starts, I think Brian Mitchell brings it back like to the 20 yard line. And it's like a draw to deuce and deuce scores, like on the second play of the game. And the, I was there and the place was shaking. Like absolute vet was shaking. And I'm like, we're going to blow them out. And then next thing you know, Jervis is still running. And then you think we might come back. And then I think it was Rondé Barber just intercepts McNabb and takes it back. And oh my gosh. I come back. I'm living in the city. I take the train home, Broad Street line, back to the apartment in the city. And my wife, she comes back like an hour later. And then she looks at me. I'm sitting on the couch like someone died. And she goes, you and the Eagles are a bad marriage. Like, it's just not getting any better. <laughs> You're in a bad marriage with them. Anyway, so that's, my, that's the worst Eagle game of my life. So with Al Davis, what's some leadership lessons you learned from him? I was... Uh... I was involved with everything. He used to tell me all the time, he'd say, kid, you can't work in the NFL. You got to live in the NFL. I mean, Al Davis worked hard at everything he did. He understood the league. He worked every facet of the game. He was a part of it all. And, uh, you know, he just was, he devoted his life to the team, you know, and, and uh, he kind of had a hard time with change. He had a hard time with kind of letting go, trusting people completely. But for the most part, I mean, his his knowledge of the complete game was something that I'll never forget. You said a couple of times in the book, I did the audio book. And uh, so funny when you would tell him something and he didn't like it, he'd just go, oh, fuck. And he'd hang up. <laughs> he'd say, oh, yeah, he would always say, he would just say, oh, fuck and hang up. You don't, you don't understand. You don't fucking understand. And then he'd hang up. From there, you go to Cleveland, the general manager for Cleveland. I was in Cleveland. I left San Francisco to go to Cleveland. Okay. So I spent almost 10 years in Cleveland. 91 is when Belichick came in in Cleveland. That's when we hired him. And that's where my relationship with Bill started in 1991. Now, when you met Bill, like, could you tell right away he was different? the The minute I met Bill, I mean, the minute I met Bill, I knew he was different. Uh, he handed me a piece of paper that simply described who we were going to be as a football team. You know, like a mission statement. And he goes or in the Hall of Fame, huh? Like a mission statement? Like, was it like a mission? Oh, statement? it was a description of what the team was going to be. But when he goes in the Hall of Fame, I'll give that piece of paper to the Hall of Fame. I mean, that's really what it was. Wow. That's so, 
Belichick ran everything. I mean, he knew offense, defense, kicking game. There wasn't anything he didn't know, and he was very confident. You know, today I, I wrote a piece for the Daily Coach about being confident or conceited, and he was very confident. There's a difference between the two. A lot of people mistake it, but it's not. And so you could just tell. I mean, you could tell. One of the things a coach has to do, Joe, is develop confidence without evidence. Okay. So anytime a coach takes over a new program, the program's not going to be successful right away. So you got to develop confidence without evidence. And That's when awesome. you can do that, when you can do that, then you have the ability to build a process. Walsh, even after two losing seasons, he had confidence without evidence. Because the mm-hmm. evidence is the scoreboard to the fans, but to the people in the building, it's, are we doing it the right way? Once we get better, I mean, when when Tom Landry takes over an expansion team in Dallas, you know, he, he tells his wife, he doesn't think he'll survive this because nobody survives a, a, an expansion team. Mm-hmm. But yet, not only he survived, he won a lot of games. So he was able to do that. And I think that at the end of the day, that's one of the, the things that, that Belichick was very good early on was you were very confident that he knew what he was doing. How micro he gets to the game. The one situation you explained, I think it was Eric Metcalf or something, you were with the Browns. He knew they had like a left-footed punter and they the way the ball carried off a left-footed punter and how they set up the return, how it totally changed the game around. Could you briefly tell that story? Yeah, we in Pittsburgh that year. Metcalf took two back for a touchdown and won the game. We, were, we weren't better than Pittsburgh, but we were that day. And it was a lot of it was because of Metcalf and his ability to return I wrote about it in the book, the detail of the return, the attention to detail. You know, Scott O'Brien, our special teams coach, was able to to really set that return because the spin of the ball and where the coverage was and all that. So, you know, it's the little things in football that matter, right? You know, it's the it, there's a great saying by Marcus Aurelius that the secret to all victory lies in the organization of the non-obvious. Mm-hmm. And Belichick's very good at organizing the non-obvious. Wow. You, you brought up Marcus Aurelius. So one of my entry points into your work was with Ryan Holiday, uh, author of The Obstacles, The Way, and He Goes the Enemy. Uh, the, the story I heard, did, are you the one, and I know that book, The Obstacles, The Way, has gone through the NFL, and there was a lot of blurbs with the Seahawks and the Patriots. My understanding is you brought that work, you introduced that work to the league. Is that fair? I, I think that's fair to say. So, you know, I read, I was working at the Patriots and the team psychologist at the time said, hey, I think you would like this book. So I went and read Obstacle is the Way. And when I got done reading Obstacle is the Way, I said, Marcus Aurelius was Bill Belichick, or Bill Belichick's the reincarnation of Marcus Aurelius. Wow. <laughs> so I sent Brian Holiday an email. I didn't know who he was or anything about him. Just tell them that, you, you know, that everybody thinks that Halberstam's book, The Education of a Coach, was the premier book on Belichick. And I said, no, no, this, this book is the, this book describes Bill Belichick better than any book. And he didn't even write his name in it. Yeah. I mean, the impediment to action. So, so then after we played in the Super Bowl that year, I was at the University of Oregon watching Pro Day. And uh, I was there and John Schneider was there. I kind of felt bad for Schneider. He's the GM of the, the Seahawks. And, you know, he was still grieving over that loss. And I said, John, I think you need to read this book. And I gave it to him. And then I gave it to a bunch of other my friends. And the next thing you know, I guess other people were reading it. Mm-hmm. 
And, and I, I've seen pictures of Brady reading it. It just flew through the league. I mean, you were kind of the entry well, point. It, well, the application of it is with stoicism does apply to coaching. You know, mm-hmm. we all talk to the players about staying in the moment, right? But then we talk about the game three weeks from now. Sure. You know, so the Navy spends millions and millions of dollars to recruit 175 men and women to join their program. And yet only 25 make it through the program. You said, well, how can that be? Well, what the Navy can't judge is competitive stamina. The Navy can't judge, can you do it every day? Mm-hmm. You know, the will of volume make you weak. And only 25 of 175, it does it. You know, the guys that usually on the first day of Navy SEAL training who are in the front of the line are always the first ones to go. Mm-hmm. Because they can't handle volume. And so being a stoic as you prepare, you have to be able to handle volume. The book is very applicable. It's my favorite book. I blew my knee out a couple of years ago and I was going through ACL surgery. I think that's when I discovered the book like five, six years ago. And I think I read it three times during the process. And it just hits you right exactly where you need to hit when you're up against stuff. Like the, the impediment to action advances action, which stands in the way becomes the way. Like there's little maxims like that. Just like, let's go. Like you, you hear whatever's in front of you. You just want to, what's in front of you, you, you make it fire and you make it fuel for what drives you. That's really cool. I heard that you brought that to the league and I found that really, really cool. Who's your favorite philosopher of all the ancients of, of the three, big three? Oh. You know, I mean, it's it's funny. I go through different periods of that. But, you know, where you, Cahill Cabron, there's times where I think Thomas Merton's message resonates, you know. But I think think when you're looking for something to kind of like Thomas Carlyle, you know, uh, has a great, has a lot of great quotes. I kind of like feel like I get it from everyone. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't just lock in. Say, I know, you know, there's certain people, Mario Cuomo loves St. Augustine, and there's certain different people that you read, and, and there are a lot of good ones. I probably read Franny O'Connor more than because of Springsteen more than anyone. Yeah, very cool. Moving on to the modern day football game, if I throw a couple ideas at you just to get your take where the game's going. Sure. Cool. First off, the fullback. You mentioned the 49ers. I remember Tom Rathman. I remember the Patriots had Devlin, a couple of the Super Bowl runs. What happened to the fullback? Some teams don't even have one. What's going, where's well, that going and will they come back? Well, remember that, that there's been two evolutions of the fullback. So there, when Jim Brown was drafted, he was the sixth player picked in his draft. There were two other players, two other running backs picked in front of him. Okay. They were called halfbacks. Jim was called the fullback. So when the, when the game was a two-back set, the fullback and the halfback were interchangeable. Okay. The halfback went to the weak side. The fullback went to the strong side. And so, or behind the center, you know, and so there was certain different ways you move the formation around. And the fullback, Jim Taylor, carried the ball on the sweep as much as Paul Horning did. Marion Motley was a fullback, and he carried it as much as anybody. And so was Jim Brown a fullback, and he carried it as much as anybody. Once the game became more of a, we're going to give one guy the ball and not two, and one guy's got to be a better blocker. That evolution happened to where we got a fullback. Mm-hmm. We got a bigger guy to block. And then when Joe Gibbs decided to just become a one-back run team with a move guy, a tight end that moved, who was a bigger man, a 265, 275-pound man, 
Locken, the fullback became a dinosaur. He became etched out. So the concept that Joe Gibbs was running in Washington was simply this. I'm going to get bigger people on your little people. So he had Donnie Warren playing tight end. who was a th- almost a 300-pound tight end. And then he had this H-back motion, Ron Middleton or whomever it was. And that guy weighed 285. Mm-hmm. And your little corner is trying to come up to support against him. That don't work. So that evolution of the fullback, whereas when Walsh had a fullback, he wanted somebody who can catch the ball. He wanted somebody to go out in routes. The league has kind of done away with that to the degree. And now that F-back, that motion guy, is now become a receiver. And so that's where the the really Travis Kelsey, who doesn't really block anybody, he's just a big receiver. So there's evolutions upon evolutions. They're just not as radical as you make them out to be. People called Kelsey a tight end, and he's a fabulous player. I'm not taking anything away from him. But he's not a tight end in the Mark Rivaro sense. Okay, yeah, yep, yep. Sitting there blocking. Like, he's almost like another tackle on the line, but he can go out and catch. Yeah, sure. How about safety. Growing up in Philly, we had Wes Hopkins, Andre Waters. We had Malcolm Jenkins, B-Doc, probably the greatest safety ever in Eagle history. You write in the book, it's not a great idea to spend a top 10 pick on a hard-hitting safety. Still true or false? Not on a hard, like Jamal Adams is a waste of money because he can't cover anybody and he can only play. So there's three levels of a defense, right? Mm-hmm. There's the first level of the defense where the defensive line plays. There's a second level of the defense where the linebackers plays. There's the third level of the defense where the safety, where the secondary plays. If you play safety today, you've got to be able to play on all three levels. You got to play a high point of the field, you got to make tackles in the box, and you got to be able to rush the quarterback. Now, Brian Dawkins could do all three, so he could be worthy of a top 10 pick because he can do all three. Jamal Adams can't play in the top part of the field. And when he comes down into the box, if he gets blocked, he's not going to be able to make a play. So it's a lot of it depends upon the scheme. A lot of it depends upon your ability to cover. Dawkins could cover a slot receiver. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, Carnell Lake, when you played Pittsburgh, when Carnell Lake was playing, he could cover a slot receiver. So instead of having to go to nickel when they had three receivers on the field, Pittsburgh just put Carnell Lake in the slot and they kept their regular defense on the field. That's a guy you would draft early. But if he can't do that, you can't draft him early. Gotcha. It's more important that your safety can cover would you say coverage is more important than safety than tackling? More because they, they limit your hitting ability. See, people say, well, Ronnie Lott couldn't play today, right? Ronnie Lott couldn't play. Well, that's complete bullshit. Ronnie Lott started at corner for a Super Bowl winning team. Mm-hmm. Ronnie Lott played corner until 85. I mean, he, he played safety at times when we played Eric Dickerson in the Rams. But Ronnie Lott played corner, and he played corner well enough. He could cover and how about say the all-time greats? You always hear where's LT or Reggie White fit in the all-time discussions. Like if Reggie White and LT played today, would they be as dominant? I think he's got them in there. Unbelievable. I mean, that's like for anybody to think that Aaron Donald is better than Re- Lawrence Taylor or Reggie White. Aaron Donald's a fabulous player. In fact, my next book, I write up the top one who I believe are the top 100 players of all time in the NFL. But Nobody could dominate. Lawrence Taylor played gunner on the punt team. You realize that? <laughs> you realize they were scared that he was out there at gunner? First, and you know, Lawrence Taylor changed the blocking schemes. Like he changed how people protected the quarterback because they couldn't block him. Reggie White was unblockable. Mm-hmm. Reggie White was a dominant. You couldn't, there's no comparison. I think 
you know, but what happens is what Steve Jobs said is so true. You can only connect dots by looking backwards, not forwards. And what we have today is a generation that wants to connect dots only without paying any respect to the fire, former players. It's like J.J. Riddick calling Bob Cousy. He played against plumbers and carpenters. It's really not fair. Mm. You know, it's not fair. If you don't study the league, like I've spent the last year of my life studying the past of the former players, and I was one of the people in the world that thought Dick Buckus couldn't play today. And that's mm. bullshit. Dick Buckus would dominate today because the game, he could adapt to the game. You mentioned your book. Of all the projects you have going on, this new book, is this the most is this the most exciting thing you're working on now? It is. Obviously, I have a show every day I do. I write. But yeah, I'm really, I'm, I've done the book. I've got the book. Now I'm just going to, I'm going through the editing process of the book. So that's could, hard. Could you tell, oh, that's got to be a, a rough. Can you tell us a little bit about the book, what it's about and when it's going to come out? Is, the book will be a, it's two books really in one. It's a, it's a book about the, the coaching trees. It's a book about the top coaches in the league and how unfair the coaching selection is to the Hall of Fame. There's only 34 guys in the Hall of Fame who are coaches and some belong and some don't. And because there's no criteria. So what I try to do in my new book is, is develop a criteria for coaches. Mm-hmm. And then I in the book, I, I want to talk about some of the great trades that have happened, why they happen and why conditions of trades occur and then I go through the history of the NFL draft and talk about the the racial inequities that happened in the NFL from really roughly 1930 to 1946 when the league really wouldn't allow black players to play in it. And nobody really knows this. I mean, the only reason the Rams were able to move from Cleveland to Los Angeles was because Kenny Washington was allowed to play for the Rams at the end of his career because the city council of Los Angeles wouldn't let the Browns play in there or move there because it was the, the stadium was funded by black taxpayer money and they wanted to see some kind of racial equity on the teams. So that I talk about that in a chapter. And then I talk about the, the, I talk about television, the impact of television, which to me is an untold story. And then I, I grade the top 100 players and that's the second part of the book. That's really cool. When do you think the book will come out? Book will be out next August, right at the Hall of Fame. Awesome. Very cool. So there is a, a supply schedule problem with books now. Mm-hmm. Same thing like in most of the country. I don't know whether it's paper or not, but there's a lot of books stacked up. You know, people have been writing, they couldn't really write them. First, good luck with that. I can't wait to read that one. One question about the youth football and one question about the modern game. Let's go youth football. Concussions, such a big topic. I know a lot of parents I'm friends with that have these like 12, 13 year old kids and they're like, they're not playing football. I don't want concussions. I know so many athletic kids not playing football now. How much of a concern is concussions limiting the number of kids playing football in America today? I think the equipment's better and I certainly think concussions are important to to eliminate. I've never been a peewee football fan. I think kids are too young. I think it turns kids off to the sport and that helps it. If you're a fat kid and, you know, and you go out for peewee football, they play a guard. And then when you grow five years, five years later, you're really athletic. You want to play running back, but you gave up on football. You know, it's like your size determines where you play when you're peewee. You don't even really know what your size is. So I think I think all the, the times that you can play, you know, seven on seven, not tackle, tag football, all that stuff, I think is really good for you. I think the more you go out and run, it's better off for you anyway. How about play calls with uh, 
artificial intelligence and computers getting so good. And you have the coaches like with almost like that archaic call sheet. When do you think computers take over the call sheet? And somebody's got to feed information to a computer, right? So, you know, if let's take let's take you're playing the Indianapolis Colts, and you want and you're playing in Indianapolis, and Dwight Freeney's over there at right end. Okay, you know you better get rid of the ball pretty quick, or else he's going to come after your ass. But when he's out of the game, you got you got a chance to throw it down the field. Does the computer know when he's out of the game and what plays to call? All in plays is a feel. You got to know the game. You got to make the adjustments. You got to correct what's wrong with the play, fix the play. You know, it's an art, just like calling defenses. See, you only ask that question from an offensive standpoint. Nobody credits defensive play callers. Mm-hmm. Nobody credits them. Nobody talks about them. And it's an art, too. Mm-hmm. It's an art, you know. And so when you, it's really two players playing chess against one another. And you got to study it and understand it. Yeah, gotcha. So it's part art, part part science. It's feel. It's gut. It just can't all be analytics. You got to see who's coming in. Who just this. Remember this about football. Remember this about football. Football is four quarters. The first quarter is all about the assessment. We practice what's going on. Is this what we wanted? Is this what we thought would happen? The second and the third quarter, you adjust to that. Mm-hmm. The fourth quarter stands alone. Okay. The, the computer doesn't know that. That's why when they sit there, you should go for it now. Well, they don't take time and situation into it. Yep. You mentioned something about the different parts of the game, meaning different things. One of the quotes I, I love from the book, I never heard before. You said games are won and lost in the final four minutes of the first half. Could you speak to that? So that, that's what we call the middle eight, right? So the, middle, the last four minutes of the first half, the first four minutes of the second half, we call that the middle eight of the game. Most games are won in the middle eight because if you're playing Peyton Manning and you're winning 10 to nothing and you get the ball with four minutes to go and you get the ball to start the half, you have a really good chance to extend that lead to 24 to nothing. And now it's almost impossible for him to come back. Firstly, if you're losing 17 to three and you get the ball with four minutes to go in the half and you score. And then you get it again and score. Now you tie the game up because he's still on the bench. He hasn't come back on the field. So it's a way to determine the game. And if you take that approach, you can extend lead or catch up pretty, pretty easily. Transfer over to a part of the interview we call Share Your Secrets so our guests can get to know you a little bit more as a person. With all the stuff you have going on, the Daily Coach and uh, your writing and your podcast, when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? Oh, I usually uh, I usually listen to Springsteen and listen to one of his concerts somewhere playing over in Italy, Milan mostly, because mm-hmm. you can buy them online. Yep. I, I listen to podcasts. I like to listen to different kind of podcasts to kind of get different ideas. I think mm-hmm. the other thing you do to clear your mind is to write. Yeah. Writing is a great way to kind of unclutter yourself. What's your writing process? I write every day. You, morning, night, like how, how you write, I write every morning. Yeah, I try to write every morning. When I get up in the morning, I try to write. Yeah. I mean, I write every morning. Yeah. How long? I, I was reading some of your daily, uh, the daily coach stuff, which is great. So you write all the daily coaches. Is that all you? I don't write all of them. I, we we kind of split them up. We don't put a, we don't put a byline on any of them because yeah. we all want it to be one thing. Yeah. Uh, but I write a lot Monday through Thursday. Yeah. And then the weekends, usually, we usually are, are other people. Okay. 
Because sometimes I read them, I'm like, that sounds like you. And then other times I read them, like, that doesn't sound like Michael. Yeah, no, you different. can tell. I think people know when I write and when I don't. Understood. And then how'd you get to know Coach Ravelink? Uh, he's, he's a remarkable. So when, when I was working for CBS Sports, this guy, John Coleman'sberger, told me that he, me and Rav would be good friends and we should meet. And eventually we did. And then we formed a friendship. And then when I wrote Gridiron Genius, I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And we ended up having dinner quite often. And we just decided that we were both reading Bill Campbell's Trillion Dollar Coach book. Yeah. And we felt like if Steve Jobs needs a coach, then everybody needs a coach. Most high performers like yourself have like a routine, either to start their day or to end their day. Like what does the first 60 or last 60 minutes of your day look like? Like what's your routine to get you going? Uh, well, usually the first 60, I usually I journal in the morning to mm. kind of get my day going. And then at the end of the day, I kind of, uh, I, I revisit what I wrote and then kind of see what, what kind of day I had a little bit. It's very stoic to kind of evaluate the day. Yep. It's very, um, I would say it's, it's very Jesuit to mm. do that. Yeah. Very Seneca. So, yeah. Yeah. Like you Marcus Aurelius so in the morning. I, Seneca at night. Yeah. yeah. And I kind of go back over it and see what you did and then what you got to do. And I, what I, I like to do is, and I learned this from reading Hemingway is I like to know what I'm going to work on in the morning. Okay. Cause I think when you know what you're going to work on in the morning, if you're going, if I'm going to write something tomorrow morning, I want to know it before I close my desk down. Mm-hmm. And then I, I really end up thinking about it all through the night. And when I close my eyes, I'm thinking about the opening paragraph. Really? You have your brain, like when you sleep, your brain's already processing that and you come up when you wake up and it's, it's like, kind of becomes, but when, when I don't do that and then I don't have as a productive as morning. That's awesome. How about you, you mentioned you you write about your kids and grandkids, like what values do you try to pass on to your kids and grandkids? I think work ethic is really important. Yep. Being humble is really important and, you know, get what you earn, you know, and, I'm fortunate that my wife has been able to really, she kind of has raised the two boys because I wasn't home very much. But I think through that, you have to be able to, you know, you show them, even though you're not around, that your work and the pride in your work to develop your craft is really important. Cool. Last three questions. Be respectful of your time. First off, wrap up question number one. If you could have everyone listening take one lesson away from everything we discussed today. What would it be? Always be curious. Keep trying to learn. Always be curious. That's great. Last two questions. These are kind of fun ones to wrap it up. Michael, if you could spend the day with any person, historical figure, alive or dead, who would it be? Bruce Springsteen. That would be cool. Like the Stone Pony, maybe? Something like Anywhere. That would be so. What's your favorite Springsteen song? Mm, that's really kind of hard. I would say somewhere in the night. Yeah, that's a good one. That's really good. Last question. Michael Lombardi, if you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? It would be what I try to teach my sons as they were growing up. The greatest reward for doing is the opportunity to do more. The greatest reward for doing is the opportunity to do more. 
I think that is about as good as a spot as any to wrap up. Michael Lombardi, I'd like to thank you for joining us. It's an honor. I so appreciate you coming on the show. I admired your work from afar for a long time, but I really appreciate the chance to speak with you. Thank you for Gridiron Genius and good luck with the new book when it comes out. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate you.